The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Well, if you have not already, open with me to Matthew chapter 5 as we go back to Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, still in the section of the Sermon on the Mount called the Beatitudes. Uh, This morning we come to verse 8 and uh, the sixth Beatitude together. Uh, but in order to get there, we'll, we'll read again all of what Jesus says. Uh, just to remind us, when Jesus is uh, speaking on what we call the Sermon on the Mount, it's because Jesus literally ascends up the mountain and then sits down and takes a teaching posture in such a way that everyone who would gather together would uh, sit and uh, with bated breath listen for the words of the teacher. And when Jesus has all of their attention... He starts here in the Beatitudes, and we've been working through them together for a number of weeks. We paused during Advent, but we've since returned, and uh, we'll continue now in verse 8 with Jesus really opening up a deep spiritual meaning for what these Beatitudes mean. We find that they go much deeper than we first uh, perceive them to go. Uh, But in order to receive uh, God's help, let's ask for it. Let's ask the Spirit to illuminate our minds as we hear God's word this morning. Let us pray. Oh Lord God, you've brought us to this place. You've assembled us in this uh, holy place with your people to to sing your praises, to lift up uh, our voices in prayer to you. Lord, we have heard your assuring word to us in the gospel. And Lord, having declared your praises and lifted our hearts and received the assurance of your grace, uh, Lord, you have prepared our hearts now to hear your word to us, uh, your word to us to instruct us, to correct us, to train us in righteousness, uh, to make us sincere Christian people. And so we pray, Lord, that as your Son, the Lord Jesus, has spoken these words, we pray that your Holy Spirit, uh, which you and your Son have sent, will come now to illuminate our hearts, to give understanding to our minds, that your Word might rest upon our ears, and Lord, you would give it meaning, and that you would have it sink deeply into our hearts that we might be transformed in the power of your word this morning. And so come, Lord, and and give help to us hearers. Give help to me as I preach, Lord, for we are needy vessels in need of grace. And so give it, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now hear God's word, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 through verse 8. This is the word of God. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. And I would encourage you to to keep your Bible open there. And you've got a handout. And if you'd like to, sneak ahead to the book of Romans already and maybe stick your hand out there in Romans chapter 1. It'll help you uh, when we come time to turn to Romans. But for now, we'll, we'll just stay here in Matthew 
but we will go back and forth to Romans uh, a couple of times. Now, as, as we've been working through these Beatitudes, I've mentioned several different times, and I'll just continue to point out the fact that it is often the case that when we hear these Beatitudes, uh, we find that they are something like layers of an onion in which we can keep peeling and find uh, deeper meaning as we go more deeply into the significance of what Jesus says, of course, because there are the words that Jesus uses, which on the surface seem very clear and, and very understandable to us. And yet when we peer at those words and look deeply, we find that the meaning of those words takes us to a, another level of understanding when we ask not only what did, what did Jesus say, but what did Jesus mean when he speaks to us uh, in general, what the Beatitudes are doing, uh, we've reviewed this at the beginning of, of each Beatitude just to remind us that what Jesus is doing in the Beatitudes is he is speaking as the king to his people, to the citizens of his kingdom, and he is saying to them, this is what life looks like in the kingdom over which I rule. And this is what it looks like to be a true citizen and a true follower of me. If you want to live in my kingdom, if you want to have citizenship in my kingdom, it looks like this and life looks like this. We don't get to define what citizenship in Christ's kingdom looks like. The king does. And that makes sense, doesn't it? And so it's oftentimes the case that we must reevaluate what our commitments are as a Christian believer to make sure that the Christian life that we are living is indeed the Christian life that Jesus calls us to as a citizen of his kingdom. And what he's been doing so far, first of all, in verses 3, 4, and 5, is saying, look, if you want to be my follower, if you want to be a citizen of my kingdom, you first of all have to realize what you don't have. And so it calls us to be poor in spirit and mourn our sins and be meek before God and other people as a result. We see what we do not possess, first of all, so that we can come to verse 6 when Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And there he is saying, Because you now realize what you don't have, here's what my grace will provide to you. You don't have righteousness in and of yourself. But through me, Jesus says, I will satisfy your deepest longing, which is righteousness. And then the Beatitudes work like something of a pyramid. You are ascending up in the first couple, verses 3, 4, and 5. At verse 6, you kind of reach the apex, the provision of righteousness. And as you come down the other side of the pyramid, Jesus is saying, now that you realize what you don't have, and now that you realize where you can find it, let me tell you what my righteousness looks like when your life is transformed by me and transformed by my righteousness. Let me show you what the outward disposition of the Christian life looks like as you live in my kingdom. That's what he did in verse 7 with regard to mercy. And now we come to verse 8. Blessed, Jesus says, are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Jesus is calling you and I, to be those who are pure in heart, to be pure in heart. But we immediately run into a problem with that. And on your outline, it says that the heart of the matter is that our heart is the matter because when Jesus talks about 
the heart. We must pull together what the Bible says about our hearts. And you know, there's so many ways that people speak about the heart. People oftentimes use that phrase, oh, follow your heart, and uh, that person has a heart of gold. You know, these phrases that we're so used to saying, but the Bible confronts some of those nomenclature by suggesting that when Jesus is speaking of the heart, he is speaking about something that is actually not in and of itself pure. The reason why Jesus is speaking about the pure in heart is because he is speaking about the nature of the citizens of his kingdom, but purity of heart is not a natural disposition. We are not born with pure hearts. Jesus is saying that coming into my kingdom will result in a pure heart, but you don't have it outside of my kingdom. Well, let me say that, but then I'll also prove it to you. The Bible has a lot to say about the nature of the human heart, and I find actually interestingly that when we speak on this point, this is one in which people really push back against. They don't believe the testimony of Scripture about what the Bible says about the heart. When Jesus speaks about a pure heart, the Bible confronts us with the reality that the human heart is not only in and of itself impure, but actually radically corrupt. Radically corrupt. Now, in the Bible... When the Bible refers to the heart, the heart in the scriptures refers, if you like, to the central processing system of the whole person. The Bible speaks of the heart in reference to your mind. That might not immediately make sense because if the Bible wants to speak of mind, why wouldn't it say mind? But the Bible speaks of heart sometimes and means your thoughts because the thoughts originate here from the heart. The Bible speaks of the heart as referring to the mind and also referring to the heart as your will, what you choose and why. It also refers to the heart as our emotions. And so the heart refers to the whole person as mind, will, and emotion. And I give you three examples of that for you on your outline there, and they all come from the book of Romans. So if it's helpful to you to flip into Romans and know just exactly where we find this, turn with me to Romans chapter 1, and let's see the example of the heart referring to the mind here. In Romans chapter 1, verse 21, Paul says this, speaking about um, unbelief and the nature of unbelief. In verse 21, he writes, for although they, that is, those who do not know God, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. He's speaking here about the unbeliever who knows that God exists, but then shoves that knowledge down. He is speaking here about the mind of the unbeliever, which is clouded by sin. He says, they became futile in their thinking, and futile thinking he refers to as darkened heart. So the heart can refer to the mind in the sense of being darkened from faith in God. The heart can refer to the mind. 
In Romans 121, we see that example. But it can also mean the will. Flip ahead to Romans chapter 2 and verse 5. The heart not only refers to our mind, it also refers to our will and what we want and what we choose and what we prefer. Uh, Paul says in Romans 2 verse 5, again, speaking of unbelief and the consequences of unbelief and not coming to faith in Christ through the gospel, he says this, Romans 2 5, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And he's speaking here in the context of those who do not repent. Those who do not turn in faith to Jesus Christ and refuse to repent is an exercise of the will and a choice to continue in sin. And Paul is saying that that reflects a hard and impenitent heart, a disobedient will, a refusal to obey is coming out of hard, impenitent hearts and therefore disobedient wills. So you see, the heart can refer to the mind, the heart can refer to the will, but it can also refer to our emotions. In Romans 5, flip ahead and look there. Romans 5, verse 5, Paul speaks of this reality. Uh, Now that he's done talking about the consequences of unbelief and what it produces in terms of a darkened mind and an impenitent heart, now he speaks of what God does when he pours the gospel into us and gives us Jesus Christ. In Romans 5, verse 5, he says this, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So here Paul is saying that the love of God through the Holy Spirit is literally dumped into the life of the Christian. And with the Holy Spirit comes the change of affections where love for God and God's love for us consumes our hearts through the gospel. See, Paul is speaking of the heart there as the the center and seat of the emotions, okay? So do you see how when Jesus uses the word heart, In the Bible, we have to bring into that association really the complexity of the way the Bible speaks of heart as the center mass of the individual, the mind, the will, the emotions. It's an all-encompassing reality. So when Jesus is talking about your heart, he's not just talking about a cardiac reality. He's talking about all of you. All of you, your mind, your will, your emotions. As you go back to Matthew chapter 5, just quickly hear that the Bible elsewhere speaks of the human heart in Genesis 6-5 as having evil thoughts continually. Jeremiah 17-9 says the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. And Jesus says in Matthew 15 verse 19 that it is out of the heart of man that every evil thing comes. Aren't you glad you came to church today, you bunch of wicked, evil people? And yet, we must actually square with this reality because Jesus is saying that my citizens of my kingdom are indeed pure in heart and blessed as a result of it. But the Bible says in our natural state, that's not true of us, which is why we must 
come into the kingdom by way of faith in Jesus Christ. And there we are back again to what Mick preached about a couple weeks ago, right? Faith in Christ, bringing about a new creation, being born again through the Spirit, through faith in Jesus Christ, and making a new person out of us. So that that heart, which was once radically corrupt and dead, is made alive through Jesus Christ. And the mind and the emotions and the will are transformed to love God, to obey God, to delight in the things that he delights in. And Jesus is saying, my people are those with pure hearts. And that's when the beatitude lays on top of us this interrogation and says, is your heart pure? In the fullness of my being, is my heart pure? Now, some people, they would see that, having heard what the Bible says elsewhere about the heart, and they would say, well, if the heart is radically corrupt and dead, forget it, right? Why should we care about any of these things? I should just quit this whole Christianity thing because it doesn't make any sense. And that's when Jesus invites you deeper into what he's actually saying. And so what does it mean to be pure in heart? We've seen that the heart of the matter is that our heart is the matter. But now we want to understand the blessings of the reality of a pure heart and exactly what Jesus means when he speaks of this. And having said everything that we've said thus far, we can see clearly how can a man's heart be pure? And the answer is only by God's grace. Only by God's grace is the human heart made pure. You may or you might know other people who are trying very hard to purify their own hearts through their own agenda. They might be pursuing their own ethics, their own different kind of religion, their own good works, whatever they want to try to purify their own hearts. But only God can purify the heart of a person. And David knew that, which is why he prayed in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 verse 10, Create in me a pure heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. And so at the very beginning, know for sure that if you want to be someone who has a pure heart, it's not going to come from something that you do. It's going to come from a work of God's grace to purify your heart. And it first begins by realizing my heart is not pure inherently. And if my heart is to be made pure, Lord God, you are the only one who can do it. When Jesus speaks of a pure heart, he's using this word pure, and it could be used in a couple of different ways, and maybe this is helpful to us. Jesus uses the word pure. It can also mean a sincerity or a purity of devotion. This one word is also used to describe the purest kind of water, right? Water without impurities or a metal without alloy or grain that has been separated out from its chaff. It represents sincerity and purity. It could also mean unmixed or unmingled dispositions, unmixed feelings, or single-mindedness. And all those variations of the word pure start to bring into focus what Jesus is saying here. So what does it mean to have a pure heart? What does it mean to have a pure heart? This idea of clear water and clear metal and grain separated from chaff and unmixed feelings. It's all focused around really two things that Jesus wants to see applied to us. 
And when Jesus is using the words, blessed are the pure in heart, it's most likely the case that he's drawing from Psalm 24. Psalm 24 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? And the answer comes, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. You see, Jesus knew the Old Testament as a good teacher, and he is almost quoting and then applying Psalm 24 and saying, if my people who are truly citizens of my kingdom want to be in that kingdom, they will have clean hands and a pure heart. And he summarizes all of that with this idea of a purity of heart. And it emphasizes two things. And these are the two things. It means, first of all, cleanliness, not just in terms of external cleanliness, but internal holiness. It means, first of all, holiness, but it also secondly refers to the idea of commitment and single-mindedness. So, to be clear, purity of heart involves two dimensions, clean hands and a pure heart. And those two things are personal holiness and single-mindedness. So we want to see what each one of those things mean because it's not enough to have one but not the other. Jesus says, those who are truly citizens of my kingdom have pure hearts and that means personal holiness and single-mindedness. So in the first place, what is personal holiness? What is cleanliness as it relates to that? Well, Personal holiness must never be confused with simple outward external obedience to rules. This is very important. Some of you, I think perhaps, grew up with a mindset about Christianity that Christianity was just rule keeping. So I can check the box of my obedience and be seen outwardly as obeying. I come to church because I'm supposed to come to church and the idea of a sincere worship of God is not the first priority in coming to church, but rather checking the box, right? External outward obedience. When Jesus is talking about a sincere heart and a, a clean heart, a pure heart, he is constantly going after this idea that Jesus is not just interested in who you are on the outside as other people can see it, but who you really are on the inside in the sincerity of your soul. Do you remember Jesus is always after the Pharisees on this point? Like, for example, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus says to the Pharisees, these people who were constantly known for their outward ostentatious displays of religiosity, he says to them, woe to you, which is a pronouncement of death. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus was not at all impressed with mere outward displays of righteousness. In fact, we could go so far as to say that Jesus hated that. 
and constantly goes after that notion. And in contrast, he calls his disciples to not just be those who are outwardly religious on the outside, but to be truly inwardly sincere in their faith. Jesus calls you and I to an inner moral holiness that is not outmatched by our external piety. What does that mean? It means that we should care more about who we really are in secret than what people see outwardly in public. If you are a more mature Christian person outwardly than you are inwardly, Jesus invites you to grow and change. And if you are that person, let me first of all say, Welcome to the club of all Christian people who are trying to grow in sincerity, but don't be deceived about it. A true Christian person must be aware that their inner holiness can only produce outward holiness that goes as far as the inner holiness is. You know what I mean by that? It means if you are just putting on a show externally, you'll only really be able to go as far as who you are in private. The Puritans were famous for saying, what a person is before God in secret, on their knees, is who they really are. Who they really are. This beatitude really interrogates us. It makes us uncomfortable and asks us a lot of questions. And we'll cycle back to what those questions are in just a moment. But first of all, see that purity of heart involves personal holiness, in private holiness, before God, not just what other people see. Is it important to be outwardly sincere and religious? Yes, for sure. But it shouldn't be outpaced by our inner holiness as well. So Jesus means personal holiness, but he also means, secondly, single-mindedness. To be pure in heart is to be single-minded. It means to be free from double-mindedness and trying to have a foot in both worlds and trying to be one person here and another person there. I imagine you know the weight of that type of guilt. Who you are in association with some people versus who you are in association with others. Jesus says to be pure in heart is to shed the weight of that type of burden. And to be single-minded and be sincere. To be single-minded and pure of heart in this sense means to be free from compromise. And free from accommodation. Free from being undecided and divided. The way the book of James speaks about this is somebody who is not pure in heart, James says, is a double-minded person. They're double-minded. They've got one foot in each world. And they are unstable in all of their ways, James says. Because you're constantly trying to figure out, who am I supposed to be at this point? Instead of saying, who am I really in sincerity? Being pure in heart in terms of single-mindedness means having a vision of faithfulness to Jesus as the greatest thing and following him in obedience to that. Now, here's where we all struggle with this point. Because I don't think any of us would deny the fact that Jesus is a great Savior. We would say, Jesus is great and I'm seeking to follow him and he's my Savior and he's my Lord and he's great. That's wonderful. 
But here's this point that I think Jesus is speaking on here with the idea of single-mindedness and pure of heart. Great things, things that we say are great, can become obscured by lesser things depending on how close we keep those things to our eye. What do I mean? You can stand before the Rocky Mountains and take in all the greatness of the Rocky Mountains. But if you take your hand and put it in front of your eyes, they're gone. In proportion, your hand to the Rocky Mountains is nothing, right? But when it comes to proximity, a lesser thing can block out even the thing you know is greater because it's far too close. So what does that look like? And as a Christian believer, we would all say, Jesus is better and and the world has fading pleasures and I I hold these things in lower relationship than the, the glory of Jesus. Great, but even those lesser things can block out Jesus if they're too close to us. Right? Too much garbage that you're taking into your life. I don't know what that looks like for you, but it's something. Something lesser than Jesus blocks our view of him when we hold it too close. And Jesus is saying, behold the greatest thing and don't be double-minded and don't be insincere and don't hold that lesser thing so close. See Jesus for who he really is. The issue is not how important the thing is to us. The issue is how close it is to us. When Jesus is held near, all things fade out of proportion and we are single-mindedness, single-minded in our pursuit of him. So, what, how should we apply all of these things? Well, Jesus, Jesus would interrogate us, it seems, with all of these things. Here's just a few questions for us to, to think about. And the first one is one that I heard a long time ago, and it has stuck with me as something that I can't, I can't get off of my mind. And it's this question. What do you think about when you're thinking about nothing in particular? What is the neutral gear into which your mind slips? What do you find yourself wandering toward in your thought life? Or, another way of saying it is, what do you find yourself being most consistently loyal to? You might be loyal to many things at many times, but what are you most consistently loyal to? What do you want more than anything else? What and whom do you love most of all? How do your actions and words reflect your heart? And who am I in sincerity and private before God. Jesus applies all of these things to us. And why does it matter? Why should we care? Because do you see what the blessing is? Blessed are the pure in heart for what? They shall see God. And, and it's an emphatic language because blessed are the pure in heart for they. Who is the they? the ones who are pure in heart, and therefore, by consequence, not others. They who are pure in heart shall see God. What does that mean? It means to see God in truth rather than error, to see God for who he really is, and in him, Jesus Christ. Keep in mind what John 1.18 says, no one has ever seen God, 
No one has ever seen God, but the Son of God, Jesus Christ, has made God known. How do you see God, therefore? By knowing Jesus Christ and walking with Him and following Him in personal holiness and single-mindedness. They, those Christian people, are the ones who shall ascend the mount of the Lord and dwell with Him eternally. And what we do with this, especially when we feel ourselves really spiritually undone, is say, Lord, I see what you are saying, and I acknowledge that it is a hard truth, but Lord, help me to believe it, and help me to, help me to be pure in heart by your grace, not in my own effort, pursuing personal holiness and pursuing single-mindedness so that I might be a true citizen of your kingdom. And when you do that, you are on the path that Jesus calls narrow. And you're truly walking in his ways. And so, people of God, how does the Holy Spirit rest upon your heart from Matthew 5, verse 8? That's only for the Spirit to know and for you to discern. But I sincerely hope that all of us, by the Spirit's help, are, are searching inwardly and saying with David, Lord, create in me a clean heart and lead me in your ways. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we are astounded how even in one verse we are able to mine the depths of spiritual truth and see how you reveal Jesus Christ to us and call us to faithfulness in him. Lord, I pray for all of us today that we would as a, a company and a congregation of people be truly sincere, be truly pure in our hearts, by your grace. And Lord, if we are able to discern that we have grown in some way in this regard, help us to thank you for it. To thank you that, that we are not the people that we used to be, but then also to remember, Lord, that we are not yet who we long to be and who we certainly will be one day in your presence. So Lord, reveal your Son to us and strengthen us in his image, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.